Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday today. This week marks the anniversary, the observance, 48 years ago of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision which legalized abortion in the United States. And so many churches, like our own this week, the next week, will be observing that. Our church, we have been observing it for four-part series, Sanctity of Life Month. And today we wrap that up. I'll begin by saying, I, you know, I always do research when I prepare these messages and look around, see what's being said and what has been said about this particular issue to enlighten us. I came across a magazine article way back in 1976, a few years after Roe, and it was titled, What I Saw at the Abortion. And the author was Richard Seltzer. He was a surgeon and he was in favor of abortion at the time, but he'd never actually seen one done. And so he asked a colleague the next time the colleague was going to do one if he could come along and observe. And so Seltzer described seeing the patient, was a woman 19 years pregnant, I should say 19 weeks, of course, lying on her back on the table. And that's unusually late because most abortions are done by the 12th week. And the doctor performing the procedure he had a syringe, and he inserted it into the woman's abdomen, and he injected her womb with a solution that would bring on contractions and would cause a miscarriage. That's how it was often done at that time. But it isn't used anymore because too often in that procedure, the baby would survive the procedure, It'd be chemically burned or disfigured. And so they've changed that. So I guess something they think is more efficient, like partial birth abortion or dismemberment that ensures the death of the child. But after injecting the hormone into the patient's womb, the doctor left the syringe standing upright on the belly of the woman. And then Seltzer said, quote, I see something other than what I expected here. It is the hub of the needle that is in the woman's belly that has jerked, first to one side, then to the other side. Once more, it wobbles. And it tugs like a fishing line nibbled by a sunfish. And he realized he was seeing the baby's desperate fight for life at the moment. And as he watched, he saw the movement of the syringe finally slow down and then stop. The child was dead. And whatever else an unborn child does not have, that picture shows us there's one thing he does have, which is a will to live, and he will fight to defend his life. And the last words, in fact, in Seltzer's essay are, quote, whatever else is said in abortion's defense, the vision of that other defense, meaning the child defending its life, will not vanish from my eyes, for what can language do against the truth of what I saw, end quote. So the truth of what abortion really is should disturb each and every one of us. So deeply, it should so move and motivate us to do something about it. 
to stop in some way the shedding of innocent human blood. We talk about social justice today. It's a big topic in America without even really understanding what that means as preacher Vody Bauckham preached here this weekend in South Florida. I mean, it's interesting how someone could think it's wrong to execute guilty homicidal criminals or wrong to shoot enemies in wartime or wrong to condemn violent protests in the streets or at the Capitol even and yet think it's all right to kill our own innocent and vulnerable sons and daughters. That's not biblical justice. Abortion means we're not killing adult strangers. We're talking about killing our own children, our own flesh and blood. And no matter who the father is, every child aborted is that woman's son or daughter every bit as much as any child she's ever birthed. What we need to do to stop this bloodshed, that's going to sound overly simplistic, is love, but biblical love, defined by what it is and what it looks like. And so we have before us this very familiar, universally known parable, practically, called the Good Samaritan. Unbelievers know this story very well. I once preached about it some years ago when we were in the Gospel of Luke, and I called it the Christian love story. Because what it is is just a very straight, fictional, short story, and you only find it in Luke's Gospel. And it comes in the form of an answer from Jesus to a question from a lawyer or a scribe, as he might be called at that time, with an impure heart. He knew the Torah, or the law, this man. And what he's really trying to do is test or trip up Christ. He already knows what the answer would be to the question from an Old Testament perspective in the text. And so the first part of this big two-part question, of course, is, Teacher, or Rabbi, what shall I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And that is the big question of all, right? We all want to hear and help someone with. And the Lord comes back as only he can by quoting him the great commandment of the law, which is to love God, love people. And then he said, you know, you'll be right with God if you do that. And the guy comes back in verse 29 and says, well, who is my neighbor? Who are these people? Who's the neighbor that I'm supposed to love? Why did he ask that? Well, that came from that time, a very Judaistic, rabbinical mindset that you really only loved or served relatively good people that you knew, that you were friendly with. Love a stranger or a foreigner? No way. And then the Lord answers that with the story of this beaten, stripped man, half dead, lying on the road, and two religious people, a priest and a Levite, just walk by, virtually ignore him leaving him for dead. And then a good Samaritan comes along. And that's what's remarkable. There's no accident that a Samaritan's in the story. Samaritans were known as less than, ethnically, kind of half-breeds at the time to a Jew. And he's the one, in verse 33, that pictures a gospel of life heart. And what he does, then in verses 34 to 36, is he, he shows what his heart does, and he concludes in verse 37, Christ does, with the command for this lawyer to be ready to do the same thing, the same kind of thing, as a means of demonstrating a heart of love with real care and compassion. So what you're going to see is love and mercy in action. 
And there's going to be a call to action as an application for us in this issue of abortion. And that's what's pictured here. You have a person that's inherited eternal life. Person's been saved. They've been made right with God. And they're going to demonstrate that with their love of neighbor. Who's a neighbor? We've talked about this before. The neighbor is not necessarily the person that lives next door to you or across the street. A neighbor is defined really biblically as anyone that you have the opportunity to help that comes before your path or into your life. That's what we do when we stand for the unborn and for women who are thinking about abortion, people that support it even. And we minister to those that have had it and seek help when they keep their babies. Amen? So let's look at this love and mercy in action here, beginning in verse 33 of the text, where again, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the man in the road, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, what's really interesting there is that this story, the meaning of it, has led nations to enact good Samaritan laws. They often called them laws of necessity. And what they are, are laws that mandate what people should do naturally from the heart, which is to love a neighbor by helping them when they're in danger. These are laws based on the biblical law to save lives, right? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for a friend or for another, right? So if you're walking down the street, let me ask you, someone's being beaten across the way and right in front of you, and they're being mugged or robbed or raped in front of you, how many of you would not try to intervene some way, somehow? Get your hands dirty. Yell, scream for help. Make a phone call. Physically intervene, right? Well, the application here is we've got to do something. Nearly 100 unborn children are being aborted every hour in this country. Legally murdered. Because abortion, biblically, is the shedding of innocent blood. So, what are we prepared to do about that? That's the question. Do we just walk by an abortion clinic knowing it's there and what they do and just ignore the issue? What do we do to save lives, to stand for and defend the preborn who cannot defend themselves? How do we stop the shedding of innocent blood? That's what good Samaritans are to do. And the first word here, the big word in this verse where it starts is compassion. That's where love and mercy begins. It's a word in the Greek that has the idea of being moved with a gut feeling, like pity. Literally moved to the bowels. We call it in our modern vernacular gut-wrenching. You've had that feeling? It's the same word translated in mercy when Jesus in Luke 7 felt that for the widow of Nain and actually resurrected that boy from the dead. I mean, I think you've all felt mercy, haven't you? Have you ever seen those ASPCA commercials on TV? Right? You look at the dogs and they're looking sad and suffering and created. They're, they're very difficult to watch. And by no coincidence, they're 90 seconds long. They're three times longer than the average commercial. The point of those ads, there's a point to them. The point is to create gut-wrenching mercy in the heart of the viewer to move them to what? Action. 
like adoption. You can't watch it and not want to do something. This is why we have to describe and demonstrate people the horrors and the holocaust of what is modern-day abortion. You do that by arguing for the humanity of the unborn. We've learned in this series how to do that. And showing, yes, sometimes showing and telling what happens to them in the process. Does that mean graphic pictures? Those make us uncomfortable. You've seen them. Videos of abortion or abortion remains. You don't have to do that always. If necessary and appropriate, I would say yes. There's a place for them. You could link a pro-abortion supporter, for instance, to YouTube. There's a video there called Silent Scream, which was a film produced in the 1970s. Made a tremendous impact on me when I saw it many years ago. It was just after the ultrasound technology rolled out. And the doctor who hosted it was the late Bernard Nathanson, a former abortionist. He performed thousands of abortions in New York City. He later came to Christ in the pro-life position. And he shows what goes on in an abortion, in the womb with real-time ultrasound. And it's a powerful video, still is. And that may be a way to bring mercy or compassion to someone's heart that needs it. Look at how the text goes on in verse 34. He went on to him, the Samaritan, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine that he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Prior to modern medicine, so you know, this is how you cared for someone in an emergency in the first century. And he shows how much he loves and cares by acting, doing something. He's inconvenienced here, and he does it. He stops what he's doing, and he's going to help the victim. And that's how New Testament Christian love, agape love, is really defined. The Bible teaches love is not defined by what you feel, but by what you do. It's a commitment to action. A commitment that is not dependent on feelings, good ones, but rather on a consistent, compassionate decision to sacrificially extend oneself on the behalf of another. Like you see in verse 35. And the next day, he, the Samaritan, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. That's significant in picturing just one of the ways that you can help. Denarii, what is that? That was a day's wage in the Roman Empire in the first century. It talks about two days worth. So what I did was I looked at today's median household income by today's dollars. And that would be roughly today about $300 that he gave to help. And that's no small amount of money. That's what he did to take care of this person's needs. Which, by the way, it's just a deposit because he tells the innkeeper, hey, when I come back this way again, tell me if he needs anything else, and I'll take care of it. Put it on my tab. That's the life of a born-again believer. Which our Lord pictured, by the way, of course, with his foot washing at the Passover and the first Lord's Supper in John 13. And he said there that by loving brother and neighbor... All people will know that you are my disciples. So this is a command that Jesus added in the next chapter of that gospel. He said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. You see, love is demonstrated also by obedience. 
And love and mercy, therefore, folks, are not optional for the believer. This is just something we are and do. The book of 1 John we studied last year gives us three good reasons to love. The first one is, what a shocker, because God said so. 1 John 2, those that walk in the light love, those that walk in darkness hate. And secondly, it's because of who we are, according to 1 John 3. That this love of ours is going to be confirmed in your heart as belonging to God. And then thirdly, because God showed us how to love with the foot washing, right? That's in chapter 4. Love like Christ, who is love, and he loved us first. Now, what does that look like today in stopping the shedding of innocent blood? Well, let's look yesterday at what it looked like, because the Bible gives us a lot of examples. Remember the Hebrew midwives in in Exodus chapter 1, they would not kill those babies at Pharaoh's orders that the Hebrew women were giving birth to. Moses' mother, she did whatever it took to rescue him as a baby. Obadiah, he rescued a hundred prophets from Jezebel. He provided them a safe place to live. It says in 1 Kings 18.4, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water. He was being a good Samaritan. Application for us, supporting abortion in terms of adoption for women that keep their children, foster care, ministering to women who have decided, praise the Lord, to keep their babies after considering abortion. And they may be poor. Remember, they may be outcast, the moms, with few resources to care for their child or for their children. We can't help but provide for them resources, diapers, food items, things to mothers, and crisis pregnancy centers, right? I've seen many memes and little sayings that kind of reduce the pro-life conservative position on this to, well, you pro-lifers, you care about life and people only until birth, but not afterwards. That's just a blatant distortion of the truth. And the attitude is all off, because that's not the attitude of most pro-lifers I know that actually care about helping people. We do want to care for people as pro-lifers, including after they're born. And many of us actively are involved in doing that. We just don't believe the best way to do that is with big government programs. Talk is cheap, right? Money talks. Research shows this. People with religious affiliations, listen to this like pro-lifers, give far more in charitable contributions than those without those affiliations, including the middle class and working households. In essentially every way, time, talent, and treasures. Even giving to secular organizations is higher from religious-affiliated people. Here's an interesting little stat. Religion annually contributes $1.2 trillion, it's estimated, of socioeconomic value to this country. And that estimate includes not only the fair market value of activity that's connected to churches, $91 billion, including religious schooling, but also the non-church institutions, the parachurch industry, those faith-based charities, as we have with us tonight, the hospitals, the colleges. That $1.2 trillion figure is bigger than the total economy of all but 14 nations. So we give. 
and we're hands-on Good Samaritans. Some people will do it with resources, okay? We can better fund, we can better help staff CPCs or crisis pregnancy centers. Sometimes it's going to help with post-abortive counseling, prayer, discipleship. Sometimes it's personally knowing and serving a woman that you know in your sphere of influence that wants to keep her baby. And you can help them with getting to doctor's appointments, groceries, serving single mothers like with car repairs, babysitting, and of course, again, foster care and adoption. Those are just some tangible, hands-on things we can do. We're going to hear more about later from our guests from Hope Pregnancy Center. The point is, good Samaritan love meets needs. And furthermore, let's not forget advocacy. We still have a place and a right in the public marketplace of ideas, for now, at least, to make our voices heard for the unborn. Like Esther did for the born that were in danger. Remember her? Married to a Medo-Persian king that was threatening her people with genocide. She went out to change the law. And at first she was hesitant to approach the king, remember, because just seeing him without an appointment could result in her death. And her uncle Mordecai told her, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you might not have come to the kingdom for a time such as this. Esther 4. Is that you? Have you come to this issue now for a time such as this? Might that be somebody here? Remember what Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those that are stumbling to the slaughter. People... Christians have to come to the rescue of those being taken away to death, the slaughter. The ways you do that, talk pro-life, vote pro-life, support the pro-life cause, and don't waste time in doing so. 25 unborn children were killed today in Broward County. We have to do what Christians have always done on this issue over church history. I'll give you a few historical examples and some methods. Back in the first century in the empire, abortion and infanticide was common at a level that may even be on ours today. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus came upon the early church, and it was reported in an extra-biblical but very historically accurate book called the Didache about the early church life. And it says, they taught one another, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. See, they rescued babies there. They adopted them. They personally helped pregnant women keep their babies and have them. 16th century, the time of the Reformation, I like what John Calvin said, quote, whether declaring God's truth against Satan's falsehoods or in taking up the protection of the good and innocent, we must undergo the offenses and the hatred of the world, which may imperil either our life, our fortunes, or our honor, end quote. That's love. It's mercy and sacrifice. Forward, 19th, 20th century. In India, the missionary, William Carey, he stopped babies from being thrown into the river to be eaten by alligators. In Africa, a missionary, Mary Slessor, rescued twins from ritual killing there. 
And you know, Christians, over the history, we've mentioned this before, we invented orphanages, created hospitals, practiced adoption in every place of need. And you should know, Christians did help slaves escape in the United States and Jews from the Nazis in Europe because we're good Samaritans. And the international pro-life ministry that I'm very familiar with, Passion Life, They're doing this overseas. They are mobilizing churches right now in Cuba to start pregnancy help centers. They went to Cuba. Passion Life did a few years ago. They set up a ministry in an outlying town, very small. They called it Soplo de Vida, Breath of Life. And Cuba, by the way, you should know, has the highest rate of abortion in the world per capita as a percentage of income, I should say, of population. And they did, what they did there was they trained a doctor through the theology, the information we've been sharing in this series, and they planted a pregnancy help center there. And today, they are providing home visits, ultrasounds, classes, resources, and Bible studies to promote healthy parenting and godly living. Our church today as you'll be reminded of again today for the last two years. We've been doing a sidewalk counseling and prayer ministry, thanks in large part to the help and support of our friend Tom Walker from Broward Right to Life. And we've been doing that at the Planned Parenthood Clinic in the community nearby here. And that's where we legally, peacefully pray, and we show a presence of life there. We hold signs and prayer walk. And when the opportunity presents itself, we talk to people, whether they're clients or the facility workers, as was the case you heard last week from one of our brothers on the team who shared the gospel of life. Another national pro-life ministry that Tom and I are getting to know, they want to lead the way as an example, have our church lead the way as an example to mentor other local churches to do the same thing. But you know what? We need more people to keep it up. We need more people to expand. If we had more people on the team, we could multiply our days and shifts in prayerful presence at that Planned Parenthood facility. That's love and mercy in action, okay? Our second last point, very quickly, a call to action in verses 36 and 37. Go back to Luke and the Good Samaritan. Which of these three, Jesus said to the man, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one, the the man, the scribe said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Hmm. Go and do. That's a command to do what a born again, God glorifying, Christ exalting, spirit filled believer should naturally want to do. At ground zero, one of the biggest things we do is we teach people. What God and science says about abortion and humanity. We've talked about that. And we talked about what that looks like so you can teach it. So when you're online, maybe with a willing listener, or even better, face-to-face with someone who's pro-abortion, or you're face-to-face with someone who's thinking about having an abortion, pregnant mother, maybe the father, who's the greatest influence, by the way, still in a pregnant, pregnant mother's decision, And if you've been listening to them and you're showing them love and mercy, you can stand for life by asking them the four questions we've posed in this series. I'm going to give them to you again if you're taking note. One by one, real quick. Question number one, we looked at. 
What does God say about human life, including life in the womb? You heard already, every child ever created by God, living from womb to tomb, is an image bearer, created in the image of God, all right? Every human life is endowed with an inherent dignity and a destiny. That's Genesis 1. And we looked at science. That affirms what the Bible teaches, that life begins at conception. You are a living, distinct, whole human being that just develops through natural process in maturity from conception. Question number two. What does God say about the shedding of innocent blood, including abortion? Like us, God protects most what he loves most. God protects human life. He does it chiefly through the moral laws he gives us. He's created all people with a conscience to react to those laws, like one of the top ten, right? In the Torah, do not murder. Do not kill. Murder is the intentional killing of an innocent human life. It's wrong and it's sin, as we saw in Ezekiel 22. Question number three. How do we bring the grace of the gospel to the guilt of abortion so that people are forgiven and set free? We looked at that last time. So important. Because the human experience of God's grace is found in receiving his forgiveness, experiencing a clean conscience. We found that in Psalm 32. We saw that the happiest, most blessed people in the entire world are people that confess their sin repent of their sin, place their faith and trust in Christ, and are saved and forgiven. And with that comes this incredible testimony to the mercy of the grace of God. Because the secret regret and shame is just washed away by the blood of Christ. Amen? Question four tonight again. What does God call us to do to stop the shedding of innocent blood? And how have others done so? We've looked at that a little bit. This is what we're dealing with. And it means through the story of the Good Samaritan looking at love and mercy in action and then answering the call to love and mercy, make a difference in standing for life with courage, with confidence, and yes, with compassion. Now, let's get really practical. You've heard all this, and you might get the person that says, Pastor, I get the idea. I have to commit to personally rescuing the innocent wherever I can, like the Good Samaritan. But when I try to teach this and talk to somebody about the gospel of life, I get some hard, serious objections. I'm not sure I know how to deal with them. And I'm going to give you a couple. And I'll give you a hint at how to deal with them. The first one, I'm pro-choice. What about freedom? Freedom to choose. Here's the first thing I would say. Guess what? Pro-lifers are pro-choice too. Really? Sure. Everybody is. I've never met a person in my life that's not pro-choice. You make choices every day. You choose, you chose to come here tonight, those of you that are in the room, rather than watching at home online, or didn't choose to come at all, right? The difference is, I don't have the right, and you shouldn't either to choose to take somebody else's right to life. By the way, the law of a civilized society, you should know this, Limits choices and freedoms all the time. Nobody, but nobody, is totally free to choose to do whatever they want to do. You couldn't have a civilized, safe society if that existed. 
We have laws that restrict and outlaw a person's right to choose every day. We tell them they can't rob, cheat, steal, sell drugs, abuse animals, drive 100 miles an hour in a school zone. Every good or evil thing that is done and has ever been done is by choice. Not all choices are equal, and not all choices are for the public good. Are they? We're not allowed to harm somebody else with our choices. That includes pregnant women that are carrying another person, an unborn child, who has their own DNA, apart from their mother, and a blood type and a gender that's often different from their mother. Here's another objection. They like to use the word fetus. Well, the fetus may be human, but not a person. Ever heard that one? The baby in the womb, let me just say, is as much a person five seconds after birth as they were five seconds before in the birth canal. There's no difference. Okay? But except it was legal to kill them while they were in the womb. There is no human being that is not a person. And to deal with this objection, I'm going to take you on a sleigh ride, a sled ride, okay? A sled. S-L-E-D. And what that is meant to do is you're going to walk with me through this acronym with the PowerPoint slides here, is you're going to bring the conscience of a pro-abortion person to the cross of Jesus Christ. And when I say sled, what do I mean? It's an acronym, S-L-E-D. The argument here that we're going to take is going to appeal to reason and moral logic, even for an unbeliever that doesn't even believe in God. Okay? So let's start. The argument that we want to make here, here's the first premise of the argument. Intentionally killing an innocent human being is a moral wrong. Would you agree with that? I mean, wouldn't most reasonable people agree with that? Number two. Abortion on demand is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Number three, therefore, abortion is a moral wrong. That's how you have to lay it out for people. So they can see the inconsistency, the fallacy of their logic. And you know how we're going to prove this? We're going to appeal to something called discrimination. Who likes to be discriminated against? Anybody at all? I don't think so. Does anybody like to be associated with discriminating against anybody at all or showing bigotry or bias? That's a big issue today, right? You don't discriminate against people because of their gender or skin color. The Jews were discriminated against by the Nazis, right? So we're going to argue right now that abortion is discrimination, intolerance against the unborn. How do we do that? On what basis? Let's look at the first letter in the acronym in SLED, S, size. How can something so small be a person? Looks like a clump of cells to me. Well, the preborn are smaller than born humans. Since when did size determine our humanity? Infants are smaller than toddlers, right? Toddlers are smaller than teenagers. All of them are human and are not all deserving of the law's protection. I mean, is anyone into killing toddlers? Horton the elephant got it right. A person is a person, no matter how small, right? Ask a pro-abortion supporter this. If they're comfortable with killing toddlers or what we call today little people. They used to be called dwarfs back in the day. I mean, their size could be inconvenient or defective. Why not kill them? 
Same logic or lack thereof. Secondly, the L is level of development. The unborn can't think or feel pain. They don't even know it exists. The preborn, yes, are less developed than born humans, but our level of development doesn't determine our humanity either. Toddlers are less developed than adults, are they not? Are not both human and deserving of protection under the law? Just take them on the toddler train, folks. They can't deal with it. Ask a pro-abortion person this. Should the developmentally disabled be killed because after all, as I've known some with severe cerebral palsy, they can't communicate, can't move, intellectually limited, their condition is costly, plus you can argue they're a burden on families, they may not be terribly useful to society, why not kill them? On what logical basis, if you believe in abortion, could you not extend that to someone who's developmentally disabled? Why don't we do that? Because we know it's morally wrong, as well as outlawed. E in environment in the sled. Oh, they're not even in the world. They don't even breathe air, the unborn. Well, first off, they do breathe just differently. In the womb, they're breathing amniotic fluid. And they are different because they're in a different place in that sense than born humans, but where we are doesn't determine where, who we are, does it? If we're human, we deserve the law's protection no matter where we are or where we live, right? Your value as a human being doesn't change because you crossed the street or you rolled out of bed or eight-inch difference in the birth canal. Location does not determine value for a human being. Finally, D, degree of dependency. Well, the unborn is totally dependent on just one other person. The preborn are more dependent on their mothers than most born humans are. But infants are just as dependent on their mothers, aren't they? Our dependency doesn't determine our humanity. The elderly, are they not dependent often on others? And you see that being even questioned today in our culture of death as we now have euthanasia, assisted suicide, becoming a greater reality. Hey, we're not looking to kill diabetics that need insulin, are we? Because they're dependent on that. How about a kid or adult that needs a kidney transplant? Why don't we just do away with them? They are dependent. Just going by your own logic, right? That's what it means to be human. We don't, we don't determine our value in these ways, people. The other big objection now you're going to get, by the way, before we're done, is the exception causes cases of rape and incest. Those are difficult situations, tragic situations. Heinous crimes that should be punished by the law. And they occur. Now, in terms of abortions, that is an infinitesimal portion, percentage of abortions. But that said, we have to deal very sensitively with families and women that have been victims of that. And that's something, I'll be honest with you, I struggled with, as did some of you coming to become pro-life. One of our presidents did as well about 20 years ago. I remember at that time teaching a Sunday school class in my prior church ministry, and I had to think through these exceptions after talking to pro-lifers. And I searched through the scriptures, and I searched through church history 
to find these exceptions. And by the way, guess what I found? I didn't find anything. The exceptions don't exist in Scripture or church history. Why? Because rape or incest do not justify the murder of an innocent child. Abortion doesn't take away the evil, the pain, and the suffering of the rape, but it adds another evil to it with more pain and suffering that's even worse, which is the pain of murder. Two wrongs don't make it right. So there are alternatives, choices that we must bring to bear to pregnant mothers in that crisis. Let me tell you, Planned Parenthood's not going to do it. They want and need abortions to stay in business. They are in the business of abortions. The Planned Parenthood clinic, a mile or two away from here, is a baby-killing factory. Regardless of circumstances or life's challenges, and there are many, one's preferred lifestyle is not greater than another person's right to live. So as I close, I'll just say we all need to do our part as good Samaritans. Answer the call. The call of God to do our part to stop the shedding of innocent human blood. Specifically the unborn. We can't accept it as normal, whether it's legal or not, in this country. We can't play any part personally in it. We have to personally commit to rescuing the innocent, however and wherever you can. And you start with praying and preaching the truth about the gospel of life. Pray for pro-abortion people, folks. Pray for Planned Parenthood workers. We do that every week. Pray for leaders, public officials, elected officials that God would just move on their hearts. Preach what God says in the Bible about life. Proclaim it. It's affirmed by science. Take people for a ride on the sled. S-L-E-D. Show Christ. Share Christ. Especially this, this issue with the next generation. Thankfully, we're seeing some real progress there with young adults that want to make a difference. And be like a good Samaritan. Be ready to serve. Be ready to step up and serve at a crisis pregnancy center or on our sidewalk counseling and prayer ministry team. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray from Psalm 106, which is a wonderful psalm, praising God for His goodness, His mercy and compassion, His pity on people and nations that have rejected Him. Lord, we have mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did, serving idols which became a snare to us. We've sacrificed our sons and our daughters to the demons. We've poured out innocent blood, the blood of our sons and daughters, whom we have sacrificed to idols. And therefore the land was polluted with blood. We have become unclean by our acts. We've played the whore in these deeds. And Lord, still your anger was kindled against your people as you abhorred your heritage. Nevertheless, Lord, you looked upon our distress when you heard our cry. For our sake, you remembered your covenant and you relented according to the abundance of your steadfast love. You caused us to be pitied by all those who held us captive. 
Save us, Lord, our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Lord, I lift up those perhaps in our congregation, someone listening online, one of our members that hasn't revealed this before that's holding a great burden of regret and shame over the sin of abortion, having participated in one. And again, we would remind them as we did last week in part three of this series, Lord, blessing is there for them. Joy is there for them. Soul satisfaction is there for them. If they would confess their sin to you, Lord God, repent of it, believe in Jesus, and ask to be refreshed and restored. You will do that for them. And their lives will never be the same going forward if they do. Lord, if it's a person that doesn't even know Christ as Lord and Savior, this sin's been holding them back. The same is true. May they confess. May your Holy Spirit lead them, convict them in their conscience, break their heart to confess that sin, to want to turn to you and trust in Christ alone, to forgive it so that it would be forgiven, that they would be saved, be born again, and their life transformed. And Father, I pray that our message tonight, Lord, about what we can do to stop the shedding of innocent blood will move in the hearts of Christians watching and listening and here to do more than what they have done to stop this shedding of blood, Lord, to end this Holocaust in the United States of America in word and in deed, in love and mercy and answering the call to do that, Lord. Being more involved in ministry, pro-life ministry, because we're about a gospel of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and we said... Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.